Welcome to the PR Week, PR Week's regular weekly roundup of everything that matters in the worlds of PR and communications. My name's Steve Barrett. I'm the editorial director of PR Week. Going to guide you gently through another show. Incredibly busy week. Lots to chat about with my colleague, Frank Washka, who's the executive editor of PR Week. How are you doing, Frank? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on, Steve. Lots to chat about this week, as always. um, Some really interesting stories we're going to talk about today, including the implications of non-compete legislation on PR. We launched our PR Week Dashboard 25 list, the uh, top comms tech execs. That got a lot of traffic. Chat GPT, are we finally about to be taken over by robots? Frank's been predicting it for a long time. We will find out more. And then uh, we did a bunch of content, a big package on the future of work, which uh, was very interesting to put together. We'll chat through that. And then we'll be talking about the implications of the continued mass job losses, especially in the tech sector, and main takeaways from the World Economic Forum, Forum in Davos. And obviously, those last three are all kind of interlinked. With our guest this week, and it's Matt McDonald, who's the president of Penta. So, Matt, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you for having me today. It's a pleasure. Now, tell us a bit about Penta. You bill yourselves as the world's first comprehensive stakeholder solutions firm. And um, tell us how you came into being and what, what that sentence means. Sounds very impressive. But um, thank, tell us well, what, thank you. It's, <laughs> it's working already. We um, well, let me. I you know the uh, I'll tell talk a little bit about the premise of the firm and what we're trying to do, and then a little bit of the journey that we've been on ourselves. You know, part of what we're trying to do is really combine um, the data side of communications and the strategy side of communications into one shop, so that you're not kind of trying to synthesize different pieces coming from different places. You know, we collect data from um, different stakeholder groups. We collect data from kind of media analytics, what's being talked about, both social and uh, traditional media. Um, And then we've really leaned into and put stakeholders at the center of how we view the world. How do you understand your stakeholder audiences? And then on the back end, how do you have your stakeholder audiences understand you, which is where of course, kind of the communication side of this work comes into play. Um, Penta over the past year has been a, uh, you know, we have a private equity backed financing. We, uh, we are now kind of close to a combined eight different companies. We've got 11 offices across North America, Europe, and Asia. Um, about it'll, this year, we'll probably have about 400 people globally with somewhere north of that in terms of clients. So so we've gotten pretty big pretty quick. Yeah. And you came from um, one of those companies, Hamilton Place Strategies, which I assume is now folded into Penta. And there was some... That's correct. Yeah. And you also got a, a background in consulting at McKinsey and politics with the McCain, uh, Schwarzenegger advise, advising and working on the Bush Cheney and... Uh, being an associate director of comms at the White House. So you're bringing that sort of political uh, edge to what you're doing, which has always relied on data really, hasn't it? So it's it's an interesting thing to bring in as well as the consulting angle. So tell us about how that uh, informs what you're doing at Penta, you know, now that you've, you've sort of started a fresh fresh um, yeah. offering to the market. Yeah, I have a, I admittedly have a, have a bit of a, strange and circuitous background. I did, I did uh, political communications for a while. Um, I went back to MIT for my MBA. So I, 
I don't know if I was the only kind of person with a speech writing background at M- MIT and those things don't always <laughs> go together, but, well, but that's what I did. And then chat GPT <laughs> is going to be doing all that in, in not long uh, time. <laughs> I know, I know my pro- my problems are solved. Um, <laughs> And then uh, I graduated in 2008, which was not a particularly auspicious year to be coming out of business school in terms of a financial crisis and whatnot. And then I spent uh, several years at McKinsey in their New York office and their DC office. And, you know, I would say a lot of what we are trying to do at Penta is really combine an analytical understanding with a granular understanding of communications and audiences. I don't, I just you know, I, I'm a big believer in data and simultaneously data is, is not the be all end all that is going to tell you every answer on everything. So I, I think that there's no substitute for judgment in a lot of these situations and having, and it's important to have kind of been through the fire and been around the block and understand deeply the, the clients and industries that you're working with and be able to interpret data appropriately to help them make decisions. We really try to focus on the insights. You know, I think there's a lot of pressure in the PR and communications industry to bring numbers to bear, uh, you know, to whoever your uh, internal stakeholders may be. Um, And the reality is that you, that can get into a trap of lots of fun with numbers. And uh, my boss wants a chart. So here's a chart. And at its best and highest use, it is strategic and thinking quantitatively about our work allows us to really drive deeper insights and really understand uh, and manage um, kind of communications at the best and highest level. Yeah, and that gets to the crux of that discussion we'll have about ChatGPT, doesn't it? You know, the robots yeah. will come out with a formulaic solution and you still need that human input to make sense of it and strategize on top of it. Yeah, absolutely. Have you played with chat G- GPT? Uh, I, have you been I have. experimenting around? Yeah, I got it to write my blog last week and some said it was much better than my normal stuff. But hey, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, my first my first chat GPT experiment was I had it write a, uh, a love poem to my wife. Oh, there you and, go. And she told me that it sounded like a fourteen-year-old had written it, and I, I, I don't know if that would have been Is that a better good or, or a bad worse thing? than something something that I would have written. But I do think it's I do think she is fundamentally correct. And there's you you I think it's one of those. The danger of this is actually not, in my view, and and where we are currently is that it's not the danger is not that it replaces people. The danger is that it makes us all really lazy. Yeah. So you, good of you, you to you, uh, give this warning to all of our listeners before Valentine's Day, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, if if I if I take credit for all the successes and I am not responsible for any of the failures on that score. Now, Frank, we got it to write a, a Shakespearean sonnet or yeah, something we last week. What, what, tell us about that. Yeah, no, it was – well, it was part of this analysis package we did uh, about ChatGPT and its implications for the agency world. And um, – we essentially, and well, I'm saying we, but it was our, our excellent reporter, Ewan Larkin, um, asked ChatGPT to address people's concerns about ChatGPT in, in, in sonnet form. Uh, and of course, it did it in you know less than a few seconds. And um, <laughs> I wouldn't say it addressed them thoroughly, but... You know, it was a valiant attempt, right? Building on Shakespeare's yeah. legacy. Yeah, no, it was uh, interesting. So yeah. <laughs> um, some of the names that you've got a, a high-powered um, bunch of people involved in Penta and some of the names that jumped out to me anyway were Mike Berland, who, you know, mm-hmm. genius pollster from the 
from various uh, iterations at Edelman and, and back in the day, Pencho in Berlin. Um, Alex Jutkowitz is the chair of the board, and he, we know him from uh, Burson and um, Group SJR, and Beth Comstock as well is on the board. So tell us a bit about those folks' involvement and the other people that you've got involved at Penta. Yeah, well, you know, it's been a it's been great in terms of what we are trying to do is is pretty disruptive to the space. Um, you know, we're really trying to um, obviously bring data into the the conversation, the capabilities in in a new and different way. And you know, um, Alex and Beth and Mike and some of the people that you've mentioned. Um, the nice thing is that they've seen the evolution of communications over time. And they've been both in the chair of trying to help clients and in the client chair and seeing it from the other side of what people really need. You know, Beth in particular with her with her run at, as vice chair at GE. Um, and so I think that at the end of the day, we are not, um, you know, backgrounds notwithstanding, we're not trying to insert data for the sake of data. We're trying to kind of combine all the tools that are available to really elevate what our clients are capable of, to help them make the toughest decisions, to help understand the world around them. You know, the the stakeholder universe is extremely complex, right? You can have different stakeholder groups that are at odds with each other, that have different opinions. Even within stakeholder groups, you can have lots of different um, contradictory perspectives on different things. And that is a very dangerous spot to be making decisions if you don't have a full and comprehensive understanding of the world around you. And it can, as we've seen, you know, different companies and their leaders can get into a lot of trouble if they're, if they don't have kind of a pulse of the environment and what's happening. So the team has been great. The, the you know, we've had a great, um, we've had a great time building the company. We're having a lot of fun with it. And, um, and I think we're just really doing a lot of great innovative work. Yeah, and you work with a lot of Fortune 50 clients. Tell us about the client. Is it, if you think of a traditional PR firm, for example, they would typically have the chief communications officer as their client. That's a that's a generalization. But if you look at someone like sure. Teneo, they would go in at the CEO level. Where would you go in? What what are you, who who are you talking to within the client organizations? It you know, it's a bit of a mix. I mean, maybe maybe I'll take it from the um from the stakeholder perspective on that because it I think this is an issue that a lot of our clients are struggling with. You know, broadly defined, I would say our clients are focused on kind of stakeholder and um, public scrutiny, Have tend to have complex businesses that where it's a little more nuanced than just kind of like, here's your widget type of thing. But when you think about the stakeholder universe, we basically break that universe down into four key groups. So you've got investors. Uh, employees or suppliers, you've got kind of political actors, regulators, that type of universe. Um, And then you've got uh, customers or consumers, right? So you think about those four groups and how you measure and think about information flow to those groups, how you measure and think about what those those groups actually think, getting the deep dive on their perspective on things. And then all of those groups tend to roll up into different parts of the company. So, you know, understanding around investors and markets typically will go up to the CFO. Customers or consumers may be a, a CMO. You know, the, um, the GR function, the government relations function might report into the general counsel. And then, of course, you've got kind of communications and they can 
multiple aspects of this might roll into that function. So, so we've really seen a broad a broad range within the C-suite that we are working with, and it kind of depends. I don't I don't see a best case or a universal approach to how companies are thinking about their stakeholder groups. It 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 depends on the company and it depends on the people in the company. So we're we're kind of reporting into a lot of different places. It's interesting. Yeah, it's not a one size fits all. And and I think the CEOs and the C suite have a much better understanding of it all frankly since COVID, you know, when they've seen yeah, uh, what you know, what public policy and communications can add to the mix across the board, not just in the sort of external media relations thing, especially employee engagement. You mentioned that. How would you say what yeah. you're doing now is different to what you did at McKinsey, for example? You know, you're, you're a consulting firm. What's the sort of special source you're adding at Penta compared to a McKinsey or an Accenture or something like that? Well, we're certainly focused very much so on, uh, you know, the reputation and the information flow within the uh, the companies and the clients we serve. You know, when I was at McKinsey, I worked on a lot of growth. It was tend to be I were I personally tended to work on a lot of growth strategy projects at the time. So, how is this company going to drive revenue, or how is this company going to drive pro- um, profit, etc.? I think that. Um, you know, when I think about what Penta is doing and how we approach it, I, I very much am a believer that to be effective in a communications role in helping the company talk about and explain the rationale for their decisions, why they're doing what they're doing, it can't be divorced from underlying business realities in the industry or the company or the rationales and that sort of thing. Like, you, you know, I I think that we, we at, uh, at Penta try and go as deep on understanding the rationale for um, for company decisions and how they're framing that and how they're explaining that um, as any other consulting firm, I think that's I think that's really important to really understand the situation that you're dealing with. And that, that in that sense, it's not dissimilar from some of the diagnosis that I did at McKinsey at the at the front end of a given project. You know? Yeah, and uh, just to finish up, and we'll talk about this a bit when we, later in the podcast when we talk about Davos. But what are your clients' big? Cons- you know, we're in January; it's the start of the year. Everyone's a little uncertain about what's what's ahead of us in 2023. What are the big? issues that you're seeing clients wanting help with in terms of the next 12 months? Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, we're, we're getting, a, um, it is a busy time of the year when people I think are, are setting up for the rest of the year. And, you know, we're getting a lot of clients who are coming to us with, um, comp- they, they see the need after, as you pointed out, kind of the COVID um, period of time, they see the need for a comprehensive understanding of their stakeholders, and they're looking for fresh approaches on how to think about that. Um, at the same time, in this part of the year, we're thinking we're seeing a lot of um, clients who are looking at different campaigns that they want to run over the course of the year. How do they set that up? How do they think about strategy? How do they measure that? What are the kind of innovative ideas that they can bring to bear? Yeah, the beginning of the year is always such an exciting time. I think that. Um, it's also this particular year. There's just a lot of um, change and uncertainty uh, in the environment. But that's a that's a great time when you can get challenged and come up with new ideas and really push yourself to think about what's possible. So you know, it's a very exciting time with our clients, and I'm really excited to kick off 2023. Yeah, it's good times and bad. Clients need help, don't they? So um, yeah, that's right. So continued success to you, Matt. It'd be great to plot the progress of Penta, and we'll hear from you 
on some of the newsy topics. Frank, starting with this one, interesting analysis that Jess uh, Ruderman did for us, uh, our senior reporter, about the non-compete legislation that's come in. And we had a look at what that means for the PR industry. What, what, what were the findings there? Yeah, well, first, the background about it, which is that the FTC is considering a rule change that would essentially ban the um, the use of non-compete clauses in contracts nationwide. Now, currently, it's different on a state-by-state basis. Some of them do ban it already. Some of them don't. And some of them allow for a lot of exceptions. So uh, this would ban them nationwide. Now, uh, it's in a 60-day comment period. Uh, in which companies or agencies in this case could, um, you know, express concerns or changes or, or, or things they see that might be wrong with such a change. Now, as it works for the PR industry and uh, for agencies largely, um, what a, na- a national ban, which experts say has been hard to enforce for a long time just because of the nature of the industry where people are looking to move up all the time and jump from agency to agencies made it hard to enforce uh, but also with a state-by-state nature of it where it, it largely falls to where an individual lives which might be New Jersey or Connecticut in this case rather than New York and there might be different rules and uh, that can be the case across the country but what it might do would is create a more interesting and creative use of other restrictive covenants uh, that might be non-solicitation clauses within contracts. It might be confidentiality or non-disclosure clauses within contracts, which of course already exist, but they might be used more often or in more creative ways. It might also, um, you know, other protective covenants uh, under NDAs um, might also come into use more often. So it's a really... um, it could create a really interesting environment if the FTC goes ahead with this. It might even promote the the use of of what's been called the aqua hires. You know, hiring um, acquiring a group of people from one organization and bringing them into another organization instead of an individual. So uh, this is something we'll be watching throughout the comment period and whether the FTC enacts it as well as what the reaction is going to be because um, it, it it's going to create it's going to change the environment a bit. And it's going to change the way that agencies work. So that's, this is a big topic. Yeah, Matt, what, we're in a people business, aren't we? Consulting, PR. What's, what was mm-hmm. your take on this? Um, well, cards on the table, I don't like non-competes. I think that they, uh, I, I think that in most cases, it's kind of unreasonable. Um, I do, we, you know, I do think non-solicits are completely appropriate. Uh, if every time someone left, you're, firm gets gutted with <laughs> lose clients and lose people and stuff. That's not a recipe for kind of building uh, successful institutions, but I'm not a particular non-compete fan. I will say that there's a, there's a nuance to some of this where, uh, you know, non-competes are cer- certainly appropriate and reasonable when you're actually buying a company. Mm. Um, you know, buying, if you sell your company and then day two, you kind of walk out and go restart the company across the street and try and steal back all your own clients. That's it's happened before, that's a, hasn't it? Especially in yeah, some, some other parts of the world I could mention. <laughs> yeah, that's a tough one. Um, I, th- I mean, outside of our industry, I just, I kind of think non-competes have grown to a point of absurdity. You know, I have a nephew who's, uh, I guess, 26 and he's a, he was, doing sales and he left a company to go to another company and they sued him. And it's like, I don't, you know, 
Yeah, you're restricting <laughs> if, someone's if you're, right to work, if you're, basically, aren't you? Right. If your company is going to rise or fall on this 26-year-old, you got bigger problems. And like, I, I just think that's a sign of, of poor management. Across the pond, you have that interesting term of, of garden gardening leaf, leaf yeah. which, is, which sounds yes. lovely, but I'm not sure it actually is. Well, it's nice if you get six months sure, off, especially sure. if it's in the summer and, you know, before you can start your new job. So, uh, yeah, that was a, a bit of a change when I came over here. You're basically on two weeks and that's, <laughs> yeah, see you later, you know. Um, but, um, yeah, that is a, a good point, though. There are different rules all around the world. So if something like that comes in, you might find people employing more people in a certain part of the world or, you know, that suits them better or, or, or what have you. But it's it's an interesting piece that uh, Jess put together, so it's well worth checking out. And uh, like you say, Frank, we'll, we'll watch that as the process goes through the machinations that these things do. Let's talk about comms tech because that's a massively growing area. We've been talking about data and how technology can help uh, inform the other part of the process, the more right brain part. And we launched our PR Week Dashboard 25 list, which is the tw- top 25 players in that world. And uh, some interesting folks in there, Frank. Yeah, for sure. I enjoy this list for a few reasons every year. Uh, and number one is that, you know, anecdotally, when you talk to executives out there, one thing they're trying to implement more of is, uh, you know, more of a rigorous data process in everything they do all the time. Uh, so hopefully this list is helpful for them. But also uh, we get to introduce some people who and some companies who might not be as well known and might be a little bit off the beaten path uh, in terms of, you know, not the the agencies or the companies you generally see in headlines of PR Week. And so let me call out a few of them. One is Anthony Cousins over at Factmata. Uh, Eric Keyfoot at Public Relay, uh, Melanie Samba at Sproxy. These are all, you know, new companies doing interesting things and, um, you know, really pushing forward the comms tech area. But you can also read about how people like Michael Young at Ford Motor Company, uh, you know, a, a, a legacy company to be sure and a powerful company to be sure are, are bringing this into the communications departments where they work. So it's an interesting list. And I, I think our readers are going to find some um, some new ideas for how they can measure, how they can analyze, and, uh, you know, the tools they want to buy. Yeah, it's a mixture of client-side people, agency folks, and people from the tech vendors, suppliers themselves. So there's three sort of main groups in there. And Matt, you were talking about data and, and technology and how it informs everything you do. There's just, a, if you can look back 20, 30 years, there's such a vast amount of uh, fantastic tools now, aren't there, that can you can utilize. But you can also go down a rabbit hole and invest in a lot of this stuff and find it's not quite what you wanted or it's not working for you. Yeah, I, I, um, I'm actually a big believer in, um, in some degree, we, we have a lot of proprietary tech internally, but I really like some of the low code, no code options that are out there and how you can kind of combine that with other skills in ways that are uh, very adaptable. I mean, I use Zapier a lot for a lot of um, different tools that that I use in my in kind of personal work and that sort of stuff. I've done uh, programs on Bubble as a platform. So I think even outside of kind of some of the dedicated comms tech stuff, there's a lot of ways that you can build specifically for your specific needs as a company that are very compelling. Yeah, and but I think uh, companies need 
good counsel on it when they're setting it up and building that tech Absolutely. stack so that it doesn't sort of we've all been there you build that stack and you're like oh it's not actually doing what we wanted and reversing out is expensive and not easy <laughs> right sure. or it takes so long that yeah. the uh that the technology has leapfrogged yeah. you know your exactly. what you've built yeah exactly and sticking with tech we were talking about chat gpt frank are the robots finally taking over it's everyone's talking about this aren't they not soon enough, in my opinion. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, the, we did a deep dive on ChatGPT, and, and, and it's a really fascinating technology. And we called it out in, in our lead in the story. Um, but it took Facebook 10 months to get 1 million users, and ChatGPT got that in five days, which is really an incredible stat. Um, so the long and short of it is that a- agencies are dabbling with it. They're figuring out what it's good for. But I don't think any of them think it's going to actually fully replace employees. It might give them an advantage in terms of putting together uh, data or language or boilerplate language or that sort of thing more quickly than they might have in the past. But they are all clear that that there's a, you know, a, a human brain needed to really guide this and make sure that um, there, there's not questions about, about licensing, about uh, plagiarism. Uh, and all of these other concerns that it can create if it gets um, a little ahead of itself. So it's uh, it's still definitely more of a tool than an employee. Yeah, I, that, that plagiarism thing is a really important point, Frank. And, uh, and it's worth remembering, look, AI has been around for decades. Um, earnings stories in journalism have been written by um, machine learning or AI for 20 years. You know, uh, some of those very formulaic stories – they, frankly, they can be. And uh, we've all heard that uh, mantra, haven't we? It will allow the journalists or the PR p- people to concentrate on more creative tasks. But then when it comes down to it, actually what it means is there will be fewer fewer people doing those jobs. So it's, it's definitely taken off at a tremendous rate. And I suppose to your point, Frank, the, the way it's taken off, people are asking, well, how are they going to make money out of it? You know, okay, at the moment they're building an audience, aren't they? It's classic land grab mentality but um uh, matt the the ceos in the c-suite are definitely interested though aren't they they're definitely talking about it absolutely i mean i think you know the places where we're seeing it or we're playing around with it is i think it's great for summaries of information i i would be more cautious on uh generative abilities so like i am fine with someone taking a transcript of a conference call and using chat gpt to summarize it I think asking it to generate a creative column for a newspaper is more challenging. I actually think, I, I mean, my guess is that the place that it really disrupts an industry is actually in tech itself, um, because it, the way it writes code um, is much more interesting where, you know, it's more defined in terms of what you're trying to accomplish. It's less dependent on kind of the creative abilities that humans are so good at. So I'll be interested to follow that um, trajectory of the technology. Yeah, interesting point. Um, it's um, And uh, look, there the, the being bumps in the road. CNET was producing stories, Frank, wasn't it, using AI, and they've had to stop doing it because it had mistakes in it. And they said that humans were looking at it afterwards. Well, if they were, they weren't doing a very good job. Yeah, and um, there have been questions about how they disclosed um, that ChatGPT was was producing these stories as well, which which um, to their credit didn't go over well with the with their staff. Uh, I'm not sure and they it didn't. aired that publicly. So 
an area to watch. Yeah, for sure. It's uh, it's good fun to experiment with, though. So do do try it out. Um, there's lots of fun things you can do, whether it's a, a love letter, or a Shakespearean sonnet, or writing a blog, or or writing some code. Um, let's talk about the future of work, which is kind of linked into this, Frank. Um, PR Week launched a big package of content talking um, talking about that and different aspects of it because that's it just seems to be at the, the hub of so many discussions around business employee engagement and what we've been talking about over the past two or three years. I think a really big part of this and, and, and thinking about what's in the news cycle this week and one of the stories I enjoyed from this package that we produced last week that we put online last week was um, about how communications and other departments within a company have to learn to play nice together and work together collaboratively. Um, And I think in some of these layoff stories that you see throughout tech and you see throughout media where employees are just, just really up in arms about how it was handled, you know, the, the key cards locking them out of buildings or, you know, being fired with uh, the products that they themselves worked on in some cases. Um, to me, that that feels like maybe communications was not in the room as much as they should have, or these these feel like operational failures that maybe could have been prevented. Um, so while there's been a lot of progress with these departments working together, it feels like seeing some of these stories, there's a ways to go because um, what it feels like to me is that some of the operational departments within these companies are not weighing the the communications elements of what they're doing. Yeah, one of the features is is about just that, how PR and HR are working together. Where are the guardrails? Where are the lines drawn? Is PR getting dumped with stuff by HR that, frankly, is outside its remit? Is it really being brought in for occasions like Frank's talking about, where you've that, that's going to sting, isn't it? If you are laid off with a piece of tech you built, or if you didn't happen to read your email and you get to the office and your key card doesn't work. So. There, yeah. And there's another thing about this too. I mean, the, the people in the media are obviously not immune to layoffs and there's been a lot of them lately and, yeah. and a lot of really talented people uh, are looking for work, unfortunately. Um, and that I think is, is uh, it, it's going to make even more stark that ratio between how many uh, PR people there are to every journalist, which is something that's been, the divide has been getting bigger over the past, you know, 10, 15 years. It's going to make it even more so. Something like six to one, isn't it now? PR people. for We get a lot journal. of emails. Even as you think about that, though, the, you know, the multiplicity of the stakeholders that uh, the communications function is asked to handle, to your point on layoffs or internal employees or applicants or, I mean, who knows, that, you know, the scope of uh, demand for that skill set has grown so far beyond kind of a, a traditional PR remit. It's a really interesting evolution in the space. It really is. Um, Matt, is Penta, tell us, you started a company not from scratch, but do, do you have offices? You know, how much of the work is remote or work from home? Is, and, and how are you handling that hybrid approach yeah, to the future? It's, it's interesting. It's a blend. I would say we, you know, I, I think about it first and foremost as, what is the nature of the work and then what does that dictate? So, you know, a lot of our, the, the more traditional strategy consulting side of our business is, a, is a, there's a lot of um, collaboration. There's a lot of coaching. You know, we do college recruiting every year and we have new people coming in every year. So that is difficult to completely replicate in a remote environment. Whereas 
other parts of the more technical or intelligence side of the business, it it's more amenable to remote work. But even within that, you know, you'll see, and this is something that, you know, I've thought about in the past, but hasn't kind of made itself front and center is, um, you know, there are people who have preferences that are introverts or extroverts. And regardless of the work, you know, there are some extroverted people who are like, I cannot, <laughs> I cannot work from my room every day yeah. and vice versa is that there are introverts who are living their best lives out there. So it's, I, I don't think we're near the end of kind of the, um, the settling out of how all this stuff works together, you know, and then of course on the, on the leadership side, you know, it was, we've kind of gotten immune to the fact that, um, you know, you use office space five sevenths of the week or whatever, and then you get down to, you're using the office space two or three days out of the week. And that's, that starts to raise some serious questions on the cash flow side of the business and where your priorities are and what you're trying to do. Certainly when the leases come up, those discussions are going to be had and that's going to be a, a real tipping point, I think. But on the other hand, you want to build a culture, don't you? If you want to, I guess, build Absolutely. a penta culture and it's a people business and young staffers, young journalists learn from each other in a newsroom environment and, and that's how most people learn growing up. Um, but on the other hand, if you were at McKinsey, I'm sure you were on a plane most weeks, you know, going to a client. So it was almost a precursor to that um, remote sort of uh, style of work. So there's lots of elements to it. And we look at some of those in the features. We look at how employee, employee wellness is being treated. We've uh, had a look at some of the offices, some of the new offices people are putting together and how they construct those and make them collaborative, make the spaces collaborative. So it's a, it's a great package of content. So do check it out at prweek.com. Frank, let's get on to these uh, job losses. Google let go of 12,000 people. That was in addition to Microsoft's 10,000, which I think looking at the layoffs makes it nearly 60,000 in yeah. tech, you know, just in this year alone, which is a lot of people, isn't it? it? It's a lot of people. And uh, I mentioned the media layoffs too. I mean, we've they've, they've happened uh, at the Washington Post, I think is probably the biggest. The latest you know, one. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it, it's happening in mass and, um, yeah, I think it has just from talking to folks in the sector, it has really put a cloud over, uh, their expectations for the first half of the year, at least the first quarter where, where a lot of people are expressing a lot of caution, not, you know, full blown pessimism, but a lot of caution about what budgets are going to be for the rest of the year and, and what decisions they're going to have to make. So, um, it, it's, it's kind of cast a pall on this, hasn't it? Yeah. Matt, do you think it's a case of a lot of these tech firms staffed up too much um, is it a bit of a backlash against the sort of great resignation and the we're not wanting to come into an office or I want a mass I want bigger salary, et cetera, et cetera? Or was or was Elon Musk right? Can you operate these companies with half the staff or even less in his case? I th I think that uh, I think that it, it probably is a situation when you look at the tech sector in particular that they were growing kind of prior to. Um, during COVID more aggressively than perhaps long-term uh, would indicate need. You know, for some of these companies, I think for, uh, you know, Stripe did a ton of um, growth and then they had layoffs. I think that they've rolled back their staffing side through their layoffs back to like last spring. 
So it's an interesting exercise. And, uh, you know, if you if you don't, if you'll indulge my uh, econ geek for a second, mm, go for if it. you look at <laughs> if you look at job gains, we're still gaining, at least in the States, you know, 200 plus thousand jobs a month. So it it hasn't quite bled over yet into the from the tech sector into broader trends, though I'm sure uh, the Fed is keeping an eye on that. And, you know, ideally, I mean, I mean, if I'm going to look at the silver lining on all this and, you know, God knows that when someone loses a job that that stinks is if it if there's if it dials people back a little bit and we can get a soft landing off of inflation out of this and still maintain job growth, that would that would be a, a good outcome to a tough situation for a lot of people. Yeah, and then sometimes you get a, a, a stimulus of people starting up businesses that they might have been thinking about, or you know, tech innovation that uh, you know they've thought they they, they might have been in a, a job, and and this has given them the impetus to do that. So yeah, um, yeah, interesting context there. Though. But, uh, and just to finish up, Frank, let's talk about um, Davos and the World Economic Forum. I mean, apart from chatting about Jack. Chat GPT, drinking glue glutvine or whatever it is, and watching Sting at the Microsoft party. What else was uh, were the CEOs and the uh, the great and the good talking about or thinking about? Well, it it seemed like from the coverage, um, a lot of it was pretty gloom and doom, wasn't it? And and uh, CEOs were were wondering about what's next. And um, you know, you had a lot of whether they were economists or uh, executives. Just, just expressing these really pessimistic viewpoints about possibly going into a recession, or you know, more COVID variants, or all of these things, or even the future of the the conflict in Ukraine. So uh, it did not seem like a lot of executives were leaving Davos with a lot of pessimism. Um, one other thing I think about it too. Optimism. Excuse me, optimism. Yeah. Um, I wonder. Does Davos, other than as a meeting and gathering place, which it's clear that there's there's a lot of advantages for meeting people there and and um, uh, getting a lot of VIPs in the same place at the same time and and being able to network with them. I mean, there's obvious strengths there, but I, my question is: Does Davos or does the WEF need to sort of rebrand or remarket itself? Because it, it does seem to be. The cynicism does seem to be taking over a little bit uh, in the mainstream coverage of of this is just a gathering for elites on private planes and what is really getting done there. Yeah, I mean, you can do meetings that it would take nine months a year to put together right. in one space in a week is is the argument and and get a lot done. So that's the the argument we saw Albert Buller, the CEO of Pfizer, getting chased down the street by two. Um, streamers or, or bloggers, and uh, he certainly didn't look very comfortable. I, I was very surprised at how open and how much access they had to him. I was very surprised it was not more secure when I saw that. Yeah, I mean, you could, uh, I mean, you do. You walk down the street and you could have the Jamie Diamonds there yeah. walking next to you. That's one of the beauties of it, you know. So, uh, yeah, Matt, 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 what do you think? Uh, I don't think you went this year, but I'm sure you've been in the past. Yeah, um, I. Um, it's interesting. I think. I think. Uh, da- I mean, for all the reasons that you outlined, there's a there's a value to Davos and the people being able to meet and um, connect on different issues. I, it you know, I, last time I went was pre pandemic, and I would say that it does. 
You know, what's interesting is that I think that the more apparent the kind of issues of the world are, um, the less that maybe the less value there is in Davos as kind of an idea apart from a meeting space. You know, there was a, in terms of its ability to kind of align people and drive on solutions and think about what's possible and that sort of thing, you know, at a moment like this, where you're kind of, um, there's big, uh, economic uncertainty, you've got war in Ukraine and that sort of stuff. Everybody knows what's at the top of the agenda. Yeah, it was very early on the purpose train, wasn't it? You know, that was the sort of philosophy of it, trying mm-hmm. to make the planet a better place. And obviously, there's a bit of cynicism about that. But that is still the philosophy of it. And I don't know, Frank, I think I saw people coming out. I don't think COVID was top of mind by the sound of it. It was it was almost like people would have put that behind them. And they were sort of like, yeah, you know, there's, there's problems out there. And obviously, the war in Ukraine is a big issue. But I, I thought people came away reasonably optimistic actually um I, I i don't remember this much pessimism about it in the in the mainstream press in years past but there have been other issues that overshadowed it i mean i, I think it was 2017 was the year trump showed up and there was this big question about <laughs> how antagonistic it was going to be right and it was um you know it turned out to be not so much you well know? he and played then, it for him beautifully he was yeah. just like yeah I'm, I'm america first and that's my you know that, that and everyone came to see him and uh he, he got his messages over and yeah he he kind of uh but there have been other issues in other years i think yeah too. no for sure yeah okay well that one will run and run so um matt thanks so much for joining us on the show really uh great to chat to you and um Look forward to plotting the progress of Penta over 2023. Thank you both. It was great uh, chatting with you today. Yeah, and thanks, Frank. As always, a pleasure. Um, Don't forget our PR Week Awards, the Oscars of the PR industry. They're on the 16th of March in uh, New York City. Looking forward to a great in-person event there. Got a bunch of other deadlines for you. Our healthcare conference and awards will be in New York City on the 24th of May. The final deadline for our Women of Distinction program is uh, this Friday, the 25th. So make sure you've got your uh, superstar women and women to watch entered into that. The Global Awards final deadline is the 26th of Jan. We have our Crisis Comms Conference in DC on the 12th and 13th of April. That's a launch event. Looking forward to that one. Agencies, if you uh, haven't done so yet, make sure you've got the form to be part of our agency business report. That's our biggest review of the agency sector. We're working on that at the moment. And finally, our Brand Entertainment Awards, rebranded from the Brand Film Awards. Very excited about putting that together, and that is open for entries at the moment as well. But that's all we've got time for. We'll see you next time on the PR Week. PR Week.